The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Please open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Jonah. Uh, This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Jonah, we're in Jonah chapter 2. We're going to look at the whole of chapter 2. We're going to look at the process of turning back. Jonah, the rebellious prophet, turns back to God in Jonah chapter 2. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I want to invite you once again to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I have called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning you would show us your persistence, your long-suffering, your patience, the way that you come after those of your children who run away the way that you pursue us, the way that you bring us back, the way that you refuse to allow our stubborn rebellion to win. And Lord, I pray today that we, as your children, would delight in your mercy and in your grace. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to the throne of grace in Jesus Christ and help us to rest there Lord, help us to find joy there. Help us, if we haven't already, to find salvation there. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, some Bibles have been going missing for the last month in Arizona. They were placed in the lounge of the state legislature, probably by some well-meaning people members of the Gideon Society, and they kept disappearing. 
And so security was alerted. You know, we've, there's Bibles here, and then they're gone. We put new Bibles here, and they're gone. So security, we need to figure out what's going on. And so the security put cameras up. They set up cameras, and the cameras last week caught the culprit. State Representative Stephanie Stahl Hamilton had been removing the Bibles and hiding them in different places so that no one could find them. They found them that she was putting them underneath couch cushions and in places like the refrigerator and behind the microwave. And I kind of get it. I really do. When you think something is harmful, it is your instinct to get it out of the way. It's the same way I feel at Walmart when I see those Joel Osteen books. And I'm not going to lie, I've hidden them before. I've also hidden the Book of Mormon in hotel rooms. So there you go. There's my confession to you. But what shocked me as I was reading the semi-humorous commentary on this was that Representative Stahl Hamilton is an ordained Presbyterian minister. A vocation that is supposed to be committed to making the contents of that book as widely known as possible. And I could not help, as I read the story, to think about Jonah. What a parallel. Jonah, this prophet who's supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, who's supposed to proclaim the words of God to wherever God calls him so that people can hear and come to God in his mercy. And yet Jonah does not want to embrace this calling. Jonah wants to run. Jonah wants to hide the contents of God's mercy from certain people. For Jonah... Political loyalties had replaced his loyalty to Christ. And I have a sneaky suspicion that that's probably what's happened in Arizona as well. There was a time in her life where Representative Stahl Hamilton went through the process, probably a grueling process, of completing the requirements for ordination because she believed that the contents of that book could save, could help. And now she's at a place in her life where she doesn't want anyone to have access to the contents of that book. It's a good time for us to remember as we study a book like Jonah that none of us are immune from that. None of us are immune from the type of compromise that leads us to drift away or maybe to run away. None of us are immune from the kind of rebellion that leaves us running from the presence of God instead of running towards the presence of God. You probably don't even notice the process at first. You probably have no idea what you're even doing. It probably starts with a small compromise, some pocket of idolatry where we elevate something in creation and, and that thing dethrones God and our loyalty to God. And before long, whatever that source of our worship is begins to take all of our attention. 
begins to consume our energy. Before long, we're making sacrifices to it. Before long, in order to protect it, we're, we're covering our ears to all the voices that would seek to alert us to the problem. Before long, we're running from God. And that small compromise has turned into bondage. Well, church, the good news for all of us, listen, if you are in Christ, I want you to hear me very clearly today. If you are in Jesus, you need to know that when you run, you have a God who runs after you. That's really important. Many people have compared the story of Jonah to the story of the prodigal son. Tim Keller says that in some ways you see in Jonah both of the sons in that story. You see the son who initially runs away, and as we're going to see at the end of the book, you also see the self-righteous son who gets angry when God shows mercy. But in both Jonah and in the prodigal son, what should be clear to all of us is that God does not let his children run away easily. He comes after us. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Think about the fact that you have a God in heaven who is more committed to your flourishing than you are. Who is more committed to blessing you than you are committed to being blessed. Who wants only what's good for you. And has devoted everything to supplying it. Even when we don't want that ourselves. That's the God that we see in Jonah. Jonah's pathway here is instructive for all of us. And today, we get to the familiar part of the story. You know, before I read a word of Jonah in this series, if I would have told you, hey, we're going to study Jonah, you would immediately have thought about the prophet who was swallowed by probably a whale. And that's what we think about. That's the most memorable part. And that's where we are this morning. We are at that part. Jonah has been swallowed. And the prayer that we just read together is Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. So I want to give you a disclaimer this morning. Here it is. I have absolutely no interest in discussions about whether or not this is scientifically possible. That absolutely bores me to death. I don't really care, okay? I don't care if it's scientifically possible. We believe crazier things than this. Listen, if the God of the universe can speak the earth and the universe into existence, for all I know, he created a special fish for this very purpose. It had an oxygen chamber in its belly. I don't care. It's not that hard for God to do this. And so I'm not going to talk about that at all. Those are distractions. And when we focus on things like that, we're not focusing on what is important here, 
the process through which God restores his children and brings us back. And that's what we need to know. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning in verse 1 is we're going to see how Jonah was informed by grace. Informed by grace. And, and it's just one little verse here, and we're going, to, we're going to pack a lot of meaning into it. Verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now I want you just to think about this with me. I want you to think about the process that Jonah's been involved in, that Jonah received a calling from God. Jonah rebelliously ran away from that calling. Jonah settled into apathy. He's probably spiritually depressed. He's asleep in a boat that's being storm-tossed. He's completely not hearing. He's numb to the voice of God. And so, that results in Jonah being thrown overboard to save everyone else on the ship. Jonah is sacrificed to the sea. He willingly goes to his own death. And then God in his mercy causes him to be saved by swallowing him into this fish. But he's not in the clear yet. He, he at this point doesn't know his fate. He doesn't know what's in the future. And what we see in verse 1 is that his immediate impulse is to cry out to God in prayer. Jonah prayed to the Lord. That's the covenant name of his God. That's the God who saves his people. The Lord, his God, from the belly of of the fish and and the kind of prayer. If I had just read this out to you and didn't tell you where in the Bible I read this prayer from. If I just read it and didn't say this came from Jonah and I asked you where did this come from in the Bible? I bet that most of us would have said that must be a psalm. It reads just like a psalm. This is the language of the Psalms. This is the kind of prayer that Jonah had been praying his whole entire life. And his reflex, his impulse in this moment of uncertainty, in this moment of trial, all of what he has been shaped by, the worship of his people comes flooding back into him and he calls out and he, he sings a psalm of prayer to God. The language of Israel's worship, verse 4. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast or covenant love. God's covenant love to his people. Jonah is thinking about worship in the context of God's people. Jonah is contemplating being back, being restored, going to the physical location of blessing, to be surrounded again by the community of people who love God and who are loved by God. Why does Jonah respond this way? He responds this way because he was a child of God and it was ingrained in him week after week. 
He would sing psalms just like this. He would study God's word to the point where even when he runs from God, this language is still on his tongue. You know, I've heard people say things like, you know, you can take the boy out of Alabama, but you can't take Alabama out the boy. I own that. That's true. You can say that about y'all too. You can say you, you might can take the girl out of Kentucky, but you can't take Kentucky out of the girl. We, we believe that. And I think what Jonah is showing us here is that you can take the prophet out of Israel, but you can't take Israel's worship out of the prophet. It's right here on his heart. And I want to make two points of application about this. Let me explain to you why I'm making this point. Here's the first one. There is immense value in continuing to go through the process of being faithful to God, what God calls us to do in worship, even when there are times in our lives where we are not exactly feeling it. There is value in continuing to worship God even when we feel numb even when we go through dry spells, even when there are times where God feels distant, even when our hearts at times feel cold. Now listen, we're never supposed to settle there. We're not content with the dry spells. We don't want our hearts to be cold. But, but we're human beings and we go through seasons. And what, what we learn in, 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 in this and what we learn, I think, all over the Bible is that we are being shaped and formed by worship even when we don't realize it. God is shaping us. <clears throat> the form, the categories, the language, the liturgy. You know, I've heard people tell me before, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't really enjoy the Lord's Supper. I don't ever feel anything. In fact, I had someone tell me recently that they were taught growing up that when you do the Lord's Supper, you just you put your head down, you put your, your hands together, and you, and, you, and you just really have to try to feel it. Or, or if you don't feel it, it, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. And, and yet it's so interesting to me how simple the language around the Lord's Supper is that Jesus just says, do it. He, he doesn't say anything about feeling it. He says, this do in remembrance of me. There is value in the repetition of forcing your body up to the table to do it again and again and again. To have this steady rhythm in your life so that your emotions could be all over the place. You could be in any kind of season in life, but this practice is stabilizing. It is shaping you. It is bringing you back to what's most important even when you don't feel it. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to do it weekly, because we believe that it shapes us. It's also why we started using the language of liturgy. You're like, you walk in and you see the little piece of paper in your bullets, and you're like, I thought this was a Baptist church. What are they talking about? Liturgy. Why are they doing the Lord's Supper every week? They don't do that in the Baptist church. It's supposed to be quarterly. Some churches do it yearly. My father-in-law asked me last night, he said, do you think you're the only Baptist church in Kentucky that does it every week? I said, I don't know. I don't really care. 
But we started using the language of liturgy because liturgy communicates this pattern of worship that we're being shaped by. Every week, God gathers us, God feeds us, God sends us. That's our liturgy. God gathers us, he feeds us, he sends us. He gathers us, he feeds us, he sends us. We do that every seventh day. There is a rhythm to our lives. That repetition is shaping us. It is working in us even when we don't realize it. That form is producing something that God's Spirit then fills with meaning and significance in our lives. So that's the first one. The second point that I want to make. Church, this is why we teach our kids the gospel and invite them to pray and sing these songs even before they've personally encountered Christ as Savior. Because we want them to be shaped. We want them to have the liturgy. We want them to have the language. And then we pray fervently for God's Spirit to come fill it. Because the form is not sufficient. But the form is important. So that when they're in their moment of crisis, when they're in their belly of the fish, this language will flood back. The language of the Psalms, the songs that they learned growing up, the devotions from the Jesus Storybook Bible that mom read to me before bed every night, the prayers that I was taught to pray. They come flooding back and now I have the language. Now I have the categories to understand what's happening right now. I am a lost sinner and God, you are merciful. And Jesus, you died for my sins and I am going to put my faith in you right now. That's why we do it. We are pre-discipling them. It's the process of pre-discipleship. Church, Jonah grew up in Israel as a prophet. He certainly had that. He was shaped by Israel's worship. And we see that instinctually coming back to him in this moment of crisis in his life. The language is ready on his heart to call out to God in this prayer. He's been informed by grace. But let's look at the second thing. He's also here restored by grace, verses 2 through 6. Let's look at the content of the prayer. The the first thing I want you to notice is, jump back to chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, that's significant for us because of of Jesus and Jesus' reference to that length of time. But it, it would have been significant then too. The Israelites believed in Sheol, the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. That's where the dead would go. And this isn't in the Bible, but it was what they believed is that it took three days for a dead soul to travel to Sheol. And so the the, the language here, and what we don't need to miss, is, is that Jonah here is experiencing a type of death. We talked about the figurative resurrections that we see all over the Bible. Well, this is a death for Jonah. And the language is everywhere that proves it. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried. That would be the equivalent of somebody saying, I was six feet under. I was six feet under. You know, you immediately know what that means. You're six feet under. You were dead. 
Jonah is saying, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. I was in the land of the dead. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Seas, chaos. We know from previous in the Bible that this is a sign of God's judgment. This is how God judged the earth in Noah's time. This is how God judged the Egyptians when he caused the sea to come crashing down upon their heads. Jonah's in the sea. He is under God's judgment. He is experiencing death. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. I'm I'm separated from you. But look at verse 4. There's hope. He knows God. He's been shaped by God, by God's revelation, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. This is not the end, Jonah says. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Church, have you ever been to the roots of the mountains under the sea? This is Jonah saying, I was as low as I could go. To the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, there's hope for him. Jonah is a man of faith. Jonah is turning to a God who resurrects the dead. Jonah is turning to the God who births hope out of death. Jonah knows who God is. At the end, he's going to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Even in his experience of death, even in this great trial of suffering, Jonah is turning in faith with hope. To the Lord God who resurrects the dead. This is the pattern of people of faith. People of faith understand that the trial and the suffering does not ever win. People of faith understand that when we encounter hardship, when we encounter suffering, God is doing way more than just punishing us. There is more happening. This is Jonah's version, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 1.9, where Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. We thought we were dead but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We were suffering. We were facing death, but God was using these circumstances. God was using what we were going through to make us trust in Him so that we would look to the One who raises the dead. That's the Christian perspective, church. That's the way we're trying to look at it. Because of who God is, because of what God has done, because of what God has promised and accomplished in Christ, we know that the trial is never ultimate. Now, I want to be careful here because I do think it's possible to conclude from that wrongly 
that we're supposed to look at trials and kind of be trite about them. Well, there is no Bible verse that says, get over it. There is no Bible verse, there's no teaching in the Bible that ever says that we are to invite suffering in, that we are to prefer it, that we are to bring it on. That's not the attitude. It is hard. It is never easy. It is painful. Jonah is experiencing hurt and pain. And when we endure suffering, we will too. Our perspective is never get over it. But the uniqueness of suffering as a Christian is that when we face suffering, we know that its end goal is not retribution or or punishment. Its end goal is to restore us. We know when we face suffering as Christians that it has meaning beyond punishment. That God is doing something for our good. I don't know if you've heard of Joni Erickson Tata. She's written a lot about suffering. She had an accident when she was 18 years old that left her paralyzed for the rest of her life, and she has devoted her life since then to counseling and writing about her experience of suffering and her perspective on it as a Christian. And in one of those writings, she's reflecting on her life in a wheelchair, and she says this, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to Him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, He is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. She continues, But today, as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by His love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God has reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. And we read quotes like that, and I'm going to tell you right now, I walk away from that quote, and I think, I don't think I could say that. And I want you to understand that Joni Erickson Tata probably did not get there overnight. That it has been a lifetime of her enduring the suffering that she's gone through in Christ by faith that has led her to reach that mature conclusion. And so if you're not there this morning, I want you to hear me. That's okay, but I want you to understand something else. God is in the process of bringing us there. He wants us to be able to interpret our sufferings through faith. He wants us to grow in our response to the trials 
of our lives. And the only way we're going to grow is when we understand and we're aware that there is a God who is always doing more than meets the eye. Jonah is suffering. Jonah thought he was facing a certain death, and yet Jonah now knows he's being restored. And then here's the last thing I want us to see, transformed by grace. Verses 7 through 10. This is Jonah's conclusion to his prayer. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple where God dwells, God's temple. There's three ways that Jonah is restored or transformed by grace. Here's the first one. Verse 7, those restored by grace long to worship. My life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You could keep going because it's all about worship. In verse 8, he talks about those who pay regard to vain idols, false worship. He recognizes them for what they are. And then in verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah wants to be nowhere else than in God's temple, worshiping him with God's people. Now, I live out in the world, and when people learn that I'm a pastor, I often get conversations that sound something like this. Oh, I know I need to be in church. There's like this guilt, you know, especially people who, who kind of grew up in the church or maybe they grew up listening to grandma telling them all the time they needed to be in church. So they live their lives now and they, and they just have this constant sense of guilt. Like, I, I know I need to be, but I just, I'm not going to go, but... Don't bring it up because it reminds me of what I'm not doing and my failure. And church, I just want you to understand something. For us, for people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we're not here because we have to be. Does that make sense? I hope that you don't come slavishly on Sunday morning because you have to be here. If we have been transformed by the grace of God in Christ, I pray that we are here because we desire to worship. Because we understand that there is no better place to be than worshiping the risen Christ with God's people. People ask me all the time, how's your church doing? I was asked that question last night at a family gathering. How's your church doing? Is it growing? And every time they ask me that, I know what they want. They want me to tell them numbers. And I usually do. I usually eventually get there. But I've been thinking a lot lately about other ways that I see this church growing. And one of the ways that I see this church growing is used to like three years ago, four years ago, we chart, we count y'all every week. Do you know that? We do it kind of quietly. Somebody's in the back counting heads, getting the rolls from down the stairs. We count it. And like five years ago, that chart would look like this. It would be like, you know, some weeks it'd be like, where did everybody go? Did I? And then I always used to, you could ask Joe and Josh and Dan, like I used to be like, 
did I say something mean in the sermon last week? And you know, one of the things that I'm seeing now is this steadiness to the people. And it's not that we don't miss. I mean, we go on vacations, we get sick. I mean, obviously, but, but for the most part, our members want to be here. And church, I just want you to know that's growth in grace. That is God transforming his people. That is a beautiful thing. He's growing us. We understand what He's done for us in Christ, and so we show up excited to worship Him. Not obligated. But here's the second thing we see in verse 8. Those restored by grace recognize the emptiness of idolatry. Look at what He says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols, empty idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah is seeing it as it is. He's showing us the perspective of someone who's close to Jesus. When we move close to Jesus, we look out at the world and we see the emptiness of it. But sometimes when we get far away from Jesus, we look out at the world and the world begins to look pretty good to us. There's a relationship there. Proximity to Jesus will shape the way you view everything else. It will shape the way you view the world. Jonah, as he gets close to God because he's, he's refreshed in the grace of God, he's not looking longingly at the world. He's not running after money and sex and power and all the things that the world has to offer. He's not looking longingly over the fence going, oh, I wish I could go over there with them. No, he understands that he is in the place of blessing. He understands that he is the one who is blessed eternally and flourishing in Christ. He understands that he has it better than them. And he looks upon them with pity. And then finally, those restored by grace find joy in sacrifice. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not just about getting. We have a Savior who has died to save us. He has showed us His love. We love because He first loved us. We pay because He first paid it all for us. Our response to that is joyful sacrifice. We delight to give. We understand that it is part of worship. It is what Paul says in Romans 12.1 when he says that now in Christ we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. My whole life is poured out joyfully for God. And then verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah is back from the dead. And Jonah is about to go preach to Nineveh after all. And when Jonah gets there, the Ninevites are going to repent. We're going to see that next week. But before we get there, 
If you have your Bibles, flip over. I want to end here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Would you just show us a sign, Jesus? Would you just somehow validate yourself for us? Give us some way that we can know you're really who you say you are. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Church, friends, visitors, the people of Nineveh repented at the sign of Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Will you remain in your sins in light of the Lord and Savior who died and has been raised. This is an opportunity. Whatever you're going through in your life right now, whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever hardship, understand this morning that you are not here by accident. The Word of God speaks to you in the midst of whatever you're enduring. And God's message to you is one of salvation and love and redemption. You too have been informed by His grace. You too can be restored by His grace. You too can be transformed by His grace in Christ. Let's pray together.